0: The dark side. I, I don't know. Usually, I think of the law as the dark side. <laughs> but uh, uh, I really I I enjoyed. I really enjoyed what I got to do in America as a lawyer for some of the top technology companies in the world, including you know General Motors, Honda, Siemens, Porsche, different different companies in defending their technologies, airbags, seat belts, you know, different algorithms, computers within the um, vehicles. Uh, that was very exciting. It was a lot of fun. But um, I realized, you know, at, at after about six or seven years that if I'm going to go further uh, and become a partner, that's like a lifetime thing. Once you become a partner in a law firm, it, you're, you're kind of going to do it for at least another 10 years or so. And I, I didn't want to get stuck like that. I, I really wanted to do other things. Um, some of my friends had startups. Some of my friends were angel investors. And, and you know, it looked pretty cool what they were doing. Uh, so, and, and, and it's, you know, in the beginning when you don't know anything, it seems so easy. Uh, so it's like, I can do that. <laughs> but... <laughs> But of course, the reality, uh, reality was that it was a lot more difficult. Um, it, it's a lot more complicated than it seems. Um, but I did decide to kind of make the switch and ended up coming back to Europe uh, from America uh, over 10 years of, already. And um, work, worked in Europe with Finnish and Estonian startups. Um, I was a CEO of a Finnish clean tech I was CEO of a UK digital publishing company and worked with a bunch of really cool startups, including um you know Pipe Drive from Estonia with the founders, uh Fortumo, the founders in Estonia also, and, and a bunch of others. And, and from that, I um got this idea that wow, you know, there's some really amazing deal flow in the Baltics and especially Estonia and Finland really exciting entrepreneurs doing revolutionary things. And that's when, with my cousin, right, we thought that, okay, if we could make this into a profession, if we could make this, you know, not a one-off angel investment thing, but an actual fund, that's 2016 decided to launch the first Change Ventures fund. Um, And interestingly, Change Ventures 1 is an American fund. Uh, based in Delaware with 100% American investors, uh, high net worth individuals, but the strategy for fund one and the strategy for fund two, which we later established in Estonia and uh, which became 50 million euros, uh, the strategy is the same, Uh, investing in ambitious Baltic founders. And a lot of the time these founders were doing business in South Africa or Germany or UK or USA. But the, their common theme was that they were from the Baltics, uh, so that we kind of knew their background. We knew what other projects they had done. Um, we could do some due diligence, talk to people that had worked with these founders, and could also compare them to other founders within the ecosystem to gauge where they are in relationship to the top talent. You know, Are they top 1%, top 10%, top 50%? Um, if you don't have a sense for the market, it's difficult to say at times. Um, so yeah, uh, second fund in, uh, in Estonia, in Tallinn, and I hear that you're uh, doing that as well. Very good. I think it's a good location. We've been very happy with that decision. Um, so it went from doing you know, due diligence and working out the technologies and all of that as a lawyer, but it's a very different role when you're doing it. Um, already when there's a lawsuit. In other words, something has already gotten fucked up. Uh, Something's gone totally wrong, right? When you as a lawyer come in to fix things, uh, then it's much more interesting as an investor to be there uh, not when there's a disaster, even though there will be many disasters usually along the way with startups, but in the beginning when there's a lot of enthusiasm and, and people are really have these visions uh, about how how, how they want to change the world, who, the, who do they want to help. And I really enjoy working with those founders and giving them a fast start uh, to get going uh, and, and, and doing those things they want to do.
1: How do you describe the attributes of an ideal early-stage startup for change ventures? How do you see that?
0: Well, we have focused largely on well first of all we're a generalist investor so in that sense because the baltics is such a small pond you know it's tiny Uh, i was just in brazil and the city i was in has three million people you know and estonia has 1.3 so the city i was in talking to startups had three times more people than my entire country uh so you know, the Baltics is tiny, so you, you can't really specialize and do like enterprise sauce for telcos. You you, you kind of have to do everything. Um, uh, in that way, it's difficult to really give very specific uh, characteristics of a founder or a founding team. But there are a few things that I believe we have identified along the way that, Um, make it more likely or less likely for the teams to be successful. Uh, One of them is a single founder versus a multi-founder project. Usually single founder startups are more risky and more difficult and have more issues. You want to have complementary skills on the team. You want to have several people, several founders working together Not one guy or gal that thinks they know everything and they try to do everything. Uh, That's a very tough way to to go out there in the world and and change things alone. Um, Usually the fact that you're able to inspire others, uh, have them agree with you on the vision and work with you, and in the beginning it's usually free also as the team, the fact that you can convince at least one, two, three people, smart people to work with you is already a good sign. If you're totally alone, that's kind of a danger signal. So so that's, that's one thing. Um, generally, uh, another thing that we have seen is sort of um, a bonus, a plus one, is if the founders actually have a background in what they're trying to innovate because it's really easy to come out of high school and think you know everything and you're smarter than everyone and everything is messed up and you could do it all better yeah, that's really easy it's much harder once you've actually done some things and seen how they work and why people buy and what the problems are to then innovate within the you know that ecosystem and understanding all of the different bottlenecks and complications and issues and still be inspired and still be able to really change, you know, that space, that's much more interesting usually. Um, And and those people bring their network, bring their skills, bring other team members, usually from some big company they were working at, and now they want to solve something very specific, you know, and, and make it much, much better. And and that's usually a good sign that they have a background. They're coming at the problem with knowledge, with background, with experience versus, oh, this seems you know like I could change it. I could do it better. Yeah, usually you find out why things are they are. Uh, and then motivation sometimes disappears for those sort of tourist type of founders. Um, so those are the kind of two... Types of things uh, that right away, a multi-founder team where the skills are complementary, not three sales guys or just three developers, but you know a sales guy, a developer, and, and some other marketer, complementary skill. And then um, having these people with a background uh, coming from a, a base of knowledge and not having to learn from zero about what they're trying to innovate that's you know i think that's two big roles
1: yeah so follow-up question i mean probably you see thousands of uh, pictures or presentations during a year what common mistakes do you see especially these entrepreneurs make in their pictures or approach uh, that might turn off investors Okay. And what yeah. are your red flags in the meetings
0: okay um the turnoffs and red flags are kind of similar, so so I'll um, I'll go from there. Uh, accelerators, incubators, and various startup events often teach pitching, partly because it's something that's compact and you can teach, right? Uh, so I understand why and where it's coming from, but the problem is that a lot of the times the startups then approach it kind of like I did Shakespeare in ninth grade. Uh, this is iambic pentameter. This is how it should rhyme. Just memorize this and copy. Um, and it's really boring. Uh, if if all you do is memorize exactly what's the order of the slides, you know, okay, you know, team, problem, solution, da 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 and you just have memorized this kind of a poem and read it to me, it's not very interesting. That's a red flag to me because here's a person who instead of being able to discuss something in depth or see the complexities, which there are complexities in everything, uh, even things that seem so simple, there's many layers and issues, Um, If all you can do is memorize and deliver this kind of a poem, then usually you aren't able to solve these uh, problems in depth. It's kind of a sign that you went the easier way. It's much easier to just memorize than to actually have the understanding that, okay, the reason why we're solving it for these customers is we recognize that A, B, C, D. And be able, as a normal human being, not a robot, you know or 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 a kid who's memorized the poem, but as a normal person, be able to talk about, like, well, why did you start doing this? You know and and be able to explain these things um without having the formula, which is always the same, always the same pitch, always the same order, always, oh, we're gonna go viral. This is going to be huge. We're changing the world. It just becomes a set of slogans that are meaningless after a while. So, so to me, when I see founders that are able to discuss their customer, probably the most single most important thing is understanding of the customer. If you can tell me, why is it that you're helping these people? What is it about these people that, that is you know, your inspiration, your motivation to provide them with a solution. That is a huge green flag um, because the person has thought of the whole market, the context, the specific customer persona, and that persona's problems sort of a day in the life of that persona. And they realize that, hey, these people struggle with this issue several hours a day, or it costs them this much every month because they're struggling with this. When you approach from that standpoint, I seem to have much deeper conversations, much more interesting conversations versus the superficial memorized kind of jargon. Uh, How do you reject the startups? Oh, I'm not good at that. I'm not good at that because, I mean, you know know how this business is. The reality is that 98% of the time you're saying no. So like all the time, every day in writing on the phone and face-to-face, you're constantly saying no, no, no. You're too tall, you're too short, you're too fat, you're too skinny, you're too fast, you're too slow. There's always something, right? Um, It's it's hard on them, but it's also hard on you to not get uh, disillusioned, to not get jaded, to not get negative. Like, oh, not again, not fucking this thing again, right? Because you're hearing maybe basically a me too, me three, fifth version of the same bitch But sometimes it is new. Something is different. And if you get too tired, if you get too negative, it's hard to see the positive in these pitches. So it, it's hard. I have to really tell myself to sort of reset that every new pitch you know, sort of etch-a-sketch, you clean the slate and start clean. It's hard because you can't help. It's like in court, you tell the jury, oh, ladies and gentlemen, please ignore that the guy just said he had a gun. And everybody goes, hmm, okay, I'll try to ignore that, but I know it already, so it's really hard. So it's really hard to to ignore the pitch you just heard for the same kind of company, but you have to. You have to turn it off and approach each
1: one fresh. I mean, if you were a founder, uh, other side of the table, mm-hmm. if you get a rejection, how do you convert it to an opportunity? Uh, as I said, the statistics are always against you. Even
0: if you are a very good founder with a very good startup, statistics of 98% are against you always. Uh, so just because you got to know, that doesn't mean yet that you're bad or your idea is bad or anything like that. It just in that instance in time there wasn't a match. Now that doesn't mean that three months later or six months later there isn't going to be a match. Markets change, technology changes, you know, people change. You add a new person on the team. So if you're smart, you don't try to. Sort of bully the investor into uh, kind of like giving you money. Yeah, I mean, I know people say like, oh, you have to be persistent and you have to be strong, but usually that doesn't come out that way. People are like, well, why don't you like me? you know why don't you like our team? You always you're supposed to invent, you know, and in, invest in a team. What's wrong with me? I'm the team. Like, oh God, if you get into that kind of conversation, it's really hard to come back from something like that. Um, instead, I think it's about uh, asking for advice like, okay, you know maybe you think today our market isn't big enough or something. What would be the steps that we could take to show you that the market is big enough? And then maybe we can have a rational, normal conversation where we talk about, well, you know, pilot customers could show it, you know, month to month growth of 10, 15% could show it. You know, maybe there's a McKinsey study or maybe you find some other resources online. And when you combine all three or four of these things, it, yeah, I could change my mind. You know, intelligent people should be able to change their mind when new facts are presented to them. Um, so if you try to stay Positive, and you try to stay cooperative, and you try to keep learning. Then everything is still possible. Uh, if you try to sort of force it, it's just like with relationships. You mm-hmm. cannot make that girlfriend that wants to leave. You can't force her to stay. You, there's, it's not going to work. You know, <laughs> you cannot make them. It's it's bad. It's probably illegal too. So it's the same thing With you cannot force me to invest. It just isn't going to happen. And the more you force it like that, I think the less the chance that I see you as somebody that's reasonable and and able to learn and able to take feedback and build on the feedback, right? Um, So so I, I would recommend asking for actionable, real steps that you could take. Uh, not just oh, what's wrong with me, but instead, what could I do in the next three months or six months, you know, to be to get to a different result? What kind of a slide is currently missing, or or on one of the slides that I have, what would the table or the numbers look like for me to be successful, right? And then I can give very specific, like, okay, let's take your MRR you know, let's look month to month, let's see what's happening. We can get very specific and you get useful information as a founder on how to get better. And not just for me, but for other investors too.
1: So you will improve regardless, right? Great feedback. I mean, for the last decade, uh, especially Baltic startups has a success template, which has created lots of uh great unicorns and many successful uh companies uh, what happened uh, why do you think that uh these especially estonian startups mm-hmm. and also other uh, finnish sweden we have seen lots of success stories coming there are the founders genius uh it's in the water we drink uh, <laughs> no i i think i there
0: may be i mean after the fact it's always easy to start connecting the dots to make it into a picture. It's very difficult when you just have the dots and you don't know yet how they will connect in the future. Um, But there are certain things about Estonia versus, let's say, Latvia or Latvia versus Lithuania or Finland versus Sweden. There are certain things in each of those countries and each of those cultures that are special or different that might explain the differences in their success rates. Um, one thing that's been great for Estonia is sort of the early win of Skype. Uh, way back when, you know, when the those guys were working with Skype to make the psychological break and the Uh, Through the barrier of, oh, God, you know, we're this tiny little elfin nation next to this giant bear Russia. You know, how could we ever, and coming from a Soviet background, you know, we've only had this many years of independence, right, after um, the 80s, late 80s. How could we possibly be successful? How could we possibly have a unicorn? It's just the mathematics are so against it. But then, when the Skype guys were successful, suddenly you think about it, you're like, well, fuck, these guys did it. They're Estonian. They live in the same city and town I do. They drink the same water. They eat the same food. I'm just as tall as them. You know, like, why can't I do it? (laughs) And it becomes so much more, I think, approachable and believable um, that it is possible. To, to make it, you know. And then there were a couple other successes after that um, that were uh, Hardy Maybaum with his um, startup. And then later on, of course, the pipe drives and the transfer wises, you know. And and the more, the more that flywheel keeps going and the stronger it becomes, the more founders you have now um, coming out of these successes with money, with which they can start their next project with experience with which they can start their next project with networks with which they can start the next project so they come out fully armed you know ready for battle because they have all of the things that a startup needs to succeed they will have the skills the network and the seed money the initial money to at least do the prototype uh so Having these early wins, having the early successes really feeds on on then more and more people going into entrepreneurship, believing this is a legitimate lifestyle, a legitimate career choice, right, and um, really dedicating themselves to that system. What has been also very, very special, specifically in Estonia, is that vast majority of these guys did not take their money and go to bahamas they did not you know go to i don't know malta and buy a mansion and you know just hang out and surf in portugal almost all of them did second and third startups almost all of them are angel investors almost all of them are at least advisors or something they're still doing things with the estonian teams and that experience Uh, is extremely valuable, and it really feeds the next cycles of, of startups. The countries that don't have those early wins, it seems really hard for them to get that first one, to actually believe like, oh, God, we can't do it. You know, we don't have the money. We don't have the background. We don't have the people. It seems like the list of things you don't have is so long that psychologically it's difficult to break through. I think you see that also in sports. If you look at um, Estonia currently has Oyt as a world champion rally driver, and there's a whole generation of young rally drivers that are all in like the top 10, top 15 in the world. Why? Because they saw Oit growing up watching on TV, they saw him win, on Estonian roads, with an Estonian co-driver, and they believe they can do it, and they can. Um, In women's tennis, you know, so many Estonian girls have been watching Annette um, play and become number two in the world, right? And you see that, that you're like, hey, you know, we have the same tennis court, I have the same racket, we have the same ball, maybe I can do it too. And it really creates a whole new generation of Um, uh, players entrepreneurial players or sports players that believe in themselves enough to really put the effort into it and make it into a career choice
1: you have different kinds of um, um, international exposure and also uh, experience so is culture a factor in uh, also startup success Uh, Uh, absolutely Can you compare, for example, different countries, cultures, Uh, uh, Estonian culture, for example? Absolutely. I think,
0: I mean, this is very controversial, I think, um, uh, but I believe that Estonia's background as always sort of a more liberal, more Western-looking country um, throughout its history, even, you know, even before World War I, even during the Soviet time, Estonia was sort of the most Western republic within the Soviet Union, right? It was the most open. People would watch Finnish TV. They would even sew their own clothes, you know, jeans and things to make it look like they have, like, you know, Finnish clothes and things. Um, to add to that, Estonians have never been very religious. So it isn't just, you know, um, styles and and fashion, but it's also philosophy, uh, in the sense that Estonians haven't been really strong Catholics. Estonians haven't even been really strong um, Protestants. Uh, most Estonians never go to church, like ever, in their life, right? Uh, they might get buried in a church. Maybe they get married, but unlikely both. Uh, most Estonians, when they're asked They say, hey, they believe in spirit and spirituality and and earth, like Tara religion, uh, the old school Tara, like the Gaia type of religion is still around. People are still out there hugging trees. And I think that's great because that kind of open-minded multicultural thinking allowed Estonia to be very technology agnostic. And to be thought agnostic so that, you know, they weren't like, well, you know, the, to do a good financial system, you have to have a good checking system. No, you don't have to have checks at all. So Estonia skipped checks, never had checks in Estonia, right? We went straight to digital transfers. Like, why the hell would I be writing paper checks if I can do a a, a much safer, faster transfer digitally, right? A lot of Estonians never actually had a phone, like a landline. They're like, well, why the hell would I want a landline? Can't I go directly to mobile, right? I mean, I can make calls from anywhere, everywhere. It's always with me. Why do I need the wire connected to the wall? So a lot of things, a lot of technologies Um, you know, a lot of coding languages, a lot of skills like that were easily adopted. Uh, and, and, and there wasn't so much fight against it. Like, well, this is not from our culture. This isn't from us. We didn't invent it. So we're not going to use it. It was open. Like what gets the job done? Like what's the best solution? If it comes from here, great. If it comes from there, great. No problem. I don't care. Like if it works, use it. Right. Right and build it uh, like that. So I think that kind of um, open culture that is open to different backgrounds, different religions, different people, different solutions, that opens up your mind to be, I think, more innovative and find approaches that a closed culture, which doesn't question the box, like stay within the box, that is very difficult to innovate while you're in the box.
1: What are the characteristics of your dream investment that excites you most? Uh, I've been a
0: really big fan for a long time, and we've made quite a few clean tech investments. Uh, There's some really exciting things that some of our startups that we've invested into, Aerones, with their robots that clean wind turbines, uh, Timberter with their platform, with which uh, it's the world's largest um, uh, timber platform. Uh, They digitize, basically you can point your camera at a pile of wood and it tells you how much wood there is, how much it weighs, what kind it is, you know, it it tells you the value, like whether it's uh, big enough to actually make Uh, boards or furniture or or so small that it goes into paper and pulp I mean all of that with AI just from one picture right pointing your camera so these kinds of these kinds of projects have been really exciting because you know initially I think you go into investment like this I hope most people do because they they want to change something they have higher goals than just like oh I'm gonna get rich Uh, right you should hopefully you have better motivations. Um, and, And for me, and I think for a lot of investors, it's like, you know, this is the only way that a little person in today's world can really change dramatically the world around them. By being the 379th clerk in a bank, it's pretty unlikely that you will change the world much Uh, You'll give out free pens, or I don't know what you'll do to change the world. But as a startup and as an investor, I mean, you can bring in an entirely new way that people do something, like completely. One of our investments, Verif, right? A digital verification platform uh, is a unicorn after Index invested in them. You know, you hold your passport or you hold your ID card live on camera, like us talking, And it can take the biometrics off your face, the data off of your passport, and identify you to the degree necessary for notaries and banks and courts and lawyers. So that, I mean, that's a whole new way of doing business, that you can start buying property internationally. You can do international legal cases all online, yet have the security of this kind of an instant fast and highly reliable uh, certification that you're dealing with the right person, right? And authentication. So those things literally change the world. And and like I said, it, there's not many jobs, there's not many careers where you can be part of that. It, it's, it's usually, you know, you're a very small player, but venture capital and startups, they dramatically expand your power as an individual to affect the world around you. And I think that's why the good investors are in it and the
1: the good founders are in it. So after investing the startups and uh, being your portfolio companies, how do you differentiate the uh, successful founders or the teams from the others? Are there any characteristics or differences between these uh, startups, while they are in your portfolio, because you, you, uh, I mean, you have a close relationship now mm. after being investing. Uh, are they different? For example, very, yeah. how the very founders have acted from the uh, due diligence stage to a billion-dollar company stage, or is it a chance? I, I think,
0: um, as humans. We probably want to give more credit to ourselves um, and take more credit, especially when things go right. That, oh, it was my smarts, it was my skills, it was my hard work. And maybe don't give enough credit to Fortuna, uh, you know, the way Machiavelli maybe uh, explained that, or other philosophers have explained that. there's a lot to do with where the market is and where you come in. If you're a little bit too early, you can have a perfect thing and not work. If you're a little bit late, you can have a perfect thing and not work. You, uh, you can have a perfect thing, come in, work in the beginning, but then fail. And I mean, there's so many ways to go wrong um, that I think luck plays a significant part. But there, again, there are things that you can see that seem to repeat Uh, over and over in the successful ones. And probably the single largest for me that I've noticed is the founder's obsession, Uh, like literally major obsession with the customer and the empathy and focus they can bring to the customer. Because... The bottom line is, if you understand your customer, uh, you probably need to understand him better than he even himself he understands himself. If you understand the customer's problem, he will pay you. People will pay to have their problem solved. If you do not understand, it doesn't matter how many sales and bonuses and widgets you give away, they're not going to buy you over time. So. You have to be solving a real issue for this customer, something that actually makes a difference. Not that you think it makes a difference, but he has to see that it makes a difference, right? And that's a big sort of turning of the tables. A lot of the time, startups are pushing the platform or the website they have built because they've built it. Well, nobody cares that you've built it. You know, it it isn't valuable until someone says, a user says it's valuable. And then you find out if it really solves a problem for that user. If it does, well, the more, the bigger the problem, the better it solves it, the more they will pay you. You can ask, and they won't complain. uh, And they will happily pay you, and will tell all their friends that you solved their problem. So those founders. We'll have this kind of an obsession about finding out, like, well, what exactly could we do for you? You know, like, how do we make you more effective, you know, in terms of customer? You know, what is it that you're really buying when you're buying this type of product or service? You know, I, 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 is this a, well, this is kind of a cliche, obviously. It's the whole vitamin versus aspirin thing. You know, is it a painkiller? All of those kinds of analogies that people have used. But that kind of an obsession and getting into that customer's mind, uh, it makes you spend time with them. It makes you problem-solve with them. It makes you be empathetic to their pain and then take away that pain. But just like a doctor should not and cannot effectively uh, help you if they don't know what's going on with you. They first need to take your temperature, listen to you, you know, open your mouth. They take your pulse. They first need to get to know you before they say, here, take these pills. The problem is a lot of startups when they give you the pills without even knowing what's wrong with you. Like, come on, buy these pills. Like, well, I don't need them. Don't buy them anyway. They're really good pills. Like, well, I don't need these. So you need to get around the first diagnose, the headache, first diagnose the problem. What, you know, you really look at with empathy, look at your customer and then decide which pills not the other way around. Uh, And and those founders that are obsessed, not just in the beginning, but throughout the growth uh, of the company with the customer, are the ones that are successful. Because this isn't a one-time thing. Your customers will change in time. Um, Harvey Maybaum's book talks about how he had like 23 different business models. Uh, for his grab and it's not like they were wrong. It's just at different stages of growth, you also need different models. um you know when you're starting out, it's one thing, you're just hacking and doing things. When you're in the middle of the journey, you're a little more like enterprise, but not quite yet, and you can't be that expensive, et cetera. Well, when you're at the end, maybe it's totally different types of customers you're servicing and they have different kinds of needs also. so it's never it's not a one-off. It's the obsession throughout the building of the company with this customer. Are we still solving their problems? Um, that, that's what makes, I think, the founders successful and those startups successful, focus on that customer throughout.
1: How do you select these uh, startups to invest? Do you look for consensus within the partners or can you select each separately, uh, different companies to invest? We uh,
0: the way our LPA, the limited partner agreement, which is a contract essentially with between us and the people who gave us money to invest, uh, that specifically uh requires that we have consensus uh, so that all three partners, me, right and Andres, we all have to agree on an investment. Now, does that mean that I've never been like, eh, lukewarm? No. You know, there are times, obviously, some startups where you're like, yeah, this is the best. You know, we must do this. Others are like, yeah, we should do it. You know, otherwise you will never get the consensus. Otherwise, you will never find, you know, three different people with very different personalities and very different backgrounds agreeing on something um, overly. It, It just doesn't happen that much, especially strong personalities. So you need it's a little bit of give and take. Uh, and it's sort of like, you know, uh, with everything, uh, you you need to find that, that consensus. But generally, we haven't had a lot of problem finding it. Um, it. The ones that are good, the ones we believe in, emerge fairly clearly uh, that everybody, everybody's excited about them.
1: Yeah, that consensus works because sometimes the outliers... I mean, do not need consensus at uh, um, probably a mindset of uh, like a cliche, looking from out of the box. And uh, I mean, the consensus doesn't work in that kind of uh, situations. (laughs) I mean, one of the partners is supporting that kind of investment, but the rest of them uh, are uh, against that. Most of the outlier uh, investments are like that. So how do you handle that?
0: Well, I think that's where uh, it comes in, like I said, that there's one partner with those outliers, one partner is really excited. And it makes sense because they have probably done a lot of homework. I'm thinking of, I'm not going to say the name of the company, but I remember I voluntarily wrote like a 30-page investment memo because... I really was fascinated by this space that they were operating in, and it it seems like really interesting, and 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 I liked the dynamics, and and I saw the opportunities and everything, and and I I was way out there in terms of bro, right? Like let's do this, uh, and inevitably, I was obsessed with it, but the other guys were like. Well, you know, it's okay. (laughs) So you have to find that consensus where you can explain not just by waving your hands, but also explain why is it that you believe this is a unique opportunity. And smart people are able to uh, disagree and still understand, right? And be like, okay, maybe I don't think it's a 10, but after you explained it to me, it's
1: le-
0: it, at least it's an eight. Right. <laughs> uh, so, so that's I think where the consensus comes in, where you can still have outliers uh, because somebody really believes it. Uh, they do the work. They they study the space. And, and especially with a generalist fund, we couldn't study all the spaces. You know, we've done wound care. We've done, you know, clean tech. We've done uh fintech we've done all kinds of stuff we cannot be an expert in every single thing and study everything to the end so you kind of have to have per deal champions who go deeper and then are able to bring others to to understand the space right um and but not everybody can always go that deep with every project in every space
1: so So, how long does it take to invest at startup? What does your due diligence look like? Um, One month, three months, averagely, do you have a time? It it really depends on the startup. Some startups very
0: early precede. Maybe there's nothing really to due diligence, right? Probably the main thing is, do you have pilot customers? Great, give me three names. You know, let me talk to them. Let me find out why the hell they're buying your stuff, right? Because it's buggy usually. (laughs) It's weird. It doesn't quite work, you know, but yet they're paying. That's fascinating. That's interesting. That's when I want to call that customer and get to understand uh, where is the founder's empathy coming from? What do they see? What's the problem they're solving there with this customer and why this customer is sticking with them and paying them? when they could have, I don't know, Google or Microsoft products instead, right? So there must be something special about what they're getting here. Um, and that's the primary due diligence, right? In a pre-seed company is trying to understand who are these initial customers, why are they buying, why are they using this? As the company grows, you begin to have some you know, subsidiaries, you have maybe intellectual property, maybe you have patents, maybe you have something else there's a lot that the bigger it is, the more you have to look at, you know, maybe they're operating in different markets. So you have different currencies, there's maybe currency risks between dollar, euro, I don't know, the South African rand and euro, I mean, all of this can get quite complicated, right? Um, so, so the larger the company, the more history it has, if it's done MA transactions, if it is bought other companies you kind of need to look at those like were they good deals what was the substance so you have more and more you have to do due diligence as you go up in maturity of the company but early on it's basically those pilot customers um, get to know the founders you know like just to get a feel for what kind of a problem solver they are what's their mindset how do they approach these issues uh, and what's the dynamic in the team. So that's, you know, lunches, uh, coffee, dinners, um, strategy sessions, things like that. Uh, That's really the, so it can be, like you said, I think we have done a deal in a month or like a little bit over, we've done a deal. Uh, Others that have taken four months. So it really depends How complicated is the technology? How far has the company grown?
1: So what is the advantage and disadvantage of pro and cons of being a generalist? Is it difficult to get the LPs on board while you are pitching? Sure, the LPs have a question like, okay, so what you're saying is you're an expert at
0: everything. Like, (laughs) well, no, not exactly. Well, what you're saying is then is you invest in things you're not an expert in. And it's like, oh, God, you know, it's really hard. How do you explain that? It it is tough to explain. Um, I mean, certainly the the bonus of a generalist is that you really, the job is much more exciting. It's much more interesting because you get to learn about so many different uh, areas of business of the world of new business models of different solutions. Um, if all you're doing is like B2B enterprise sauce, things begin to be pretty standard, pretty much like insert your numbers into Excel and Excel will tell you whether we'll invest. I'm not a big fan of that. Um, I, I want to get to know these spaces. Uh, I enjoy that. Uh, so, it's it's more interesting. It allows you to work with different kinds of founders also because within one vertical, within one very specific silo, often the people are also very similar. Um, but as you open it up to all different kinds of projects and all different types of business models and different geographic and, and technology sectors, it, you get a lot of variety. you get a lot of that and and that's exciting, and I enjoy that. Um, of course, the pluses uh, of specialization is that you can get really deep. I mean, you can really become the domain expert, not only uh, you know, superficially, but you might be the smartest vC in that space in the world, right? I mean, you you get to know all of the players. You get to know all the customers. If it's a narrow enough niche, you can get really deep, literally like every piece figure out, right? And, and begin to um, foresee already some things and have some theories about how this space will behave over time If if you take much of the randomness out of it by knowing all of the pieces. As a generalist, there's much more randomness, I think, and much more unknown pieces. Uh, if you are a super tight domain expert, you know, let's say you're doing just robotics, and you're doing robotics for a very specific space, you will know every inventor in that space. You will know every kind of chip that they're using. You will know every type of software that's being used. You know, you'll know hardware that's being used. You you know every startup in that space. I mean, you. You really go deep, um, so that that's the benefit and of of doing that kind of investing. Uh, that's problematic in the Baltics because it's it's a numbers game. You you couldn't possibly do that because there just won't be enough B two B SaaS enterprise four X deals, right? Uh, and if you want to do portfolio strategy. If you want to have 20 plus uh, investments, well, then you have to have 200 plus good deals from which to choose those, right? And and you're not gonna collect that from just a couple million people. Uh,
1: what do you think about the AI and venture capital vertical? So do you use also LLMs and current uh, deep models? Sure. Uh, how do you use it? And do you think that in the long term, uh, AI will decide uh, the deals and also making the decisions in the venture capital? Well, I, I'm a believer that, you know, uh, it's a tool.
0: Just like the calculator does not decide how much I'm gonna pay someone, but it's really helpful when I'm doing the math that how much I want to pay, uh, it makes my job a lot easier but the final decision is still me, right? How much I'm going to pay. I think AI will be the same way. Um, It will be a very beneficial uh, tool, a very smart tool uh, to help you make better decisions, uh, to sometimes double check you, to reality check you, uh, to, 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 help you with research, to help you with state-of-the-art figuring out what's out there, you know, all of these kinds of things. It'll help you with automation of certain things. Uh, So yeah, AI will be very beneficial uh, for investing, just like every other area in space. To think that you can just delegate everything to AI, I think that is not realistic in the private equity Uh, space because so much of what we do, especially in venture capital and of private equity, that's the sort of the very early stage, uh, you don't know yet what is the product. The product is only going to come in like year six, but you're investing in year two, right? So the AI, you cannot give the inputs. It's garbage in, garbage out. If you, you cannot give the AI the necessary inputs for it to tell you what to do because it's still open, because, you know, the, if the AI, if you want to put into the AI, what is the problem they're solving? Well, they don't know. Even the founders don't know what problem they're yet solving. So what are you going to put it in there? Right. So so the computer can't help you with that. Um, so in that sense, it isn't going to replace anyone in venture capital. It very well might uh at the very high end of, I don't know, equities trading, and you're already starting to see that, the quants, right? At that end, when you have to make decisions within a fraction of a second, when you're talking about, I don't know, the fuel markets, which have historical data for 10, 20, 50, 100 years of data, uh, and the behaviors are much more predictable and everything, yeah, their AI will, maybe do a lot of things that, that it can't in VC because so much of it is unknown at this time. But I think uh, AI is very, very helpful um, as a tool, as as like, you know, another employee, essentially, another team member uh, mm-hmm. to, to help you out.
1: Yurion, I mean, I forgot to ask, is weather is a, a major factor for the uh, startups and founders to found the company. You are in sunny uh, environment now and the venue, for example, the Baltics and Nordics are uh, very cold most of the year. So is it a factor? And um, I would like to also wrap up. I have lots of questions and it was a really pleasure conversation today. Uh, I think we should go all along, but uh, to wrap up, uh, I have some last questions. So, is weather a factor? Yes, weather
0: is a factor. Whether it's a good factor or a bad factor, that's difficult to say. I can tell you right now that a startup in Barcelona will have an easier time attracting talent than a startup, you know, somewhere in Greenland or Iceland or Estonia, because you're going to have to convince people that, hey, don't you like you know, zero degrees and rain and freezing. Well, most people will say, no, I don't. And you have to pay them extra to come there. On the other hand, if you have long periods of time where you can't go outside uh, and you have to work really hard to you know get things done because of environmental factors, you might do very long days and work really hard and 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 look for every kind of solution you know just hacking away at things for 15 hours over the dark winters that we have when the sun only comes out for a couple hours uh so i don't know whether max weber's protestant work ethic uh is is you know a a paper that gets cited sometimes by by historians and, and and philosophers but it it seems that the Scandinavian and and uh, Baltic startups have shown that they work really hard, that that they really put in the time and that they can really focus. And I have to admit, uh, today I'm in Spain and it was 24 degrees. Oof, it was really hard to focus. <laughs> it was <laughs> it was so nice outside, sun is shining, palm
1: trees. I've got oranges growing here. Oh, <laughs> so hard to focus. <laughs> so what are you reading lately? So do you have any uh, books to recommend for the founders or anyone else? Uh,
0: well, I, I have this rule uh, that I have to, I force myself to read three fiction books to every non-fiction book. So I have this unusual strategy because over time, I've begun to sort of see that the people that only read like startup books, only like business model books, it kind of begins to affect how interesting they are or, or how they, they, they see things and solve things and how creative they are. Um, but uh, it's, I try to combine science fiction Uh, a lot of in banks, things like that, Uh, these visions of of how things are solved in the future. And and for example, a lot of this AI kind of stuff. Science fiction books have struggled with that for a long time. Like, what if we have a spaceship that can make decisions much better than you, right? I mean, you can't be like with a steering wheel to going between asteroids because... (laughs) human reaction time means you'll die so giving away that power you can't be shooting lasers when things are moving at the speed of light because we're not going to move our hands that fast so you know science fiction deals with a lot a lot of these issues which maybe be uh, put into perspective uh the the technology challenges that we're facing today so so yeah, I, I enjoy a lot of science fiction, um, I enjoy history, because it's been really interesting to see how history kind of, it doesn't repeat, but some very smart person said it rhymes, so it's, it comes back, it's similar, it's slightly different, because otherwise it'd be really easy, we would already know what's gonna happen, but it's like sort of the same, but not quite. So. Uh, yeah, I enjoy history, all of that. I think the last thing I read was uh, Michael Lewis's book on um, on FTX mm. um, and Sam. Uh, that was very interesting. I just finished also uh, hatching Twitter because there's a new book out called Breaking Twitter. So I wanted to juxtapose the beginning of Twitter, the first three years of like when it's all starting. How it was completely fucked up. Um, and let's say the last year of Twitter, which also fucked up in a totally different way, in a brand new kind of way, and compare those two. But uh, but like I said, I try to do the one to three, you know, uh for for the, the two books uh of of sort of business and, and investing, I will have to read you know six <laughs> of of fiction to, to keep my mind. Alive.
1: Thank you so much uh, for your time today, Yurio. I really appreciate uh, uh, sharing your wealth of experience and insight. It has been fascinating and discussion. I mean, about Baltic startups, uh, ecosystem and your experiences and in change venture. So thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.